This meeting of the Senate Foreign Relations Europe Subcommittee will now come to order. I want to thank Ranking Member Senator Ricketts for agreeing to hold the hearing on this very important topic. And I also want to recognize the ambassador to Romania and the Romanian embassy officials who are here in um, the audience. And I understand that the DCM for Georgia is also planning to join. So hopefully she will be able to make it soon and recognize Senator Duckworth, who was just in Romania. So thank you. Um, almost two years ago to the day, I chaired a subcommittee hearing on the Black Sea region. This critical region has always been an area of interest, and I first became familiar with it when I traveled to Georgia in 2012. Georgia, of course, was the first target of Putin's revanchist policies in the region, but sadly not his last. The Black Sea region has been a critical area of focus for Vladimir Putin as he pursues his aggressive agenda and revisionist history. This map, which hopefully you can see behind me, shows precisely why this hearing and our efforts to focus on the Black Sea region are so important. In 2008, Putin annexed South Ossetia and Abkhazia because Georgia was moving toward democracy. In 2014, he illegally annexed Crimea when Ukrainians made their voices clear in support of EU membership. And in 2022, Putin further invaded Ukraine when he realized that his bullying tactics would not work. The Black Sea is critical because Putin sees it in his orbit. Some refer to it as his lake. He sees it historically and strategically as an important part of his empire. But the Black Sea is also home to three NATO nations and two aspirant countries. For them, the Black Sea is a critical economic connector. And when Russia's behavior goes unchecked, it has implications for their security and for their economies. I saw this firsthand during a visit to Romania and Georgia earlier this year. And as the Ukrainian ambassador Oksana Markarova shared with me, what happens in the Black Sea does not stay in the Black Sea. By weaponizing the export of Ukrainian grain through the Black Sea, Putin has already shown his willingness to bring the world to the brink of a global food security crisis. Russia's actions affect not only the countries bordering the Black Sea, but also dozens of countries in Africa, such as Somalia and Kenya, in um, Asia and other parts of the world countries whose food security depends on Russia's actions. It's also caused extreme volatility in grain prices over the past year and a half, which creates increased costs and uncertainty for U.S. consumers and farmers. He's upended the global energy market, contributing to rising costs in Europe and here at home. And most concerning, Russian attack drones have crash-landed in Romania and Moldova, risking further escalation in Europe given that Romania is a NATO ally. President Biden has sent Congress an assistance package that includes more than $60 billion for Ukraine. I hope we can get this done and get Ukraine what it needs. Supporting Ukraine is crucial to America's security and prosperity by ensuring Russia's war of aggression against Ukraine remains a strategic failure. This is critical not just for the sake of Ukraine, or the sake of the Black Sea region, but for the sake of the United States and our allies. I'm pleased that Assistant Secretary O'Brien has agreed to testify on the State Department's Black Sea strategy, which the department is required to produce pursuant to report language 
that was included in the fiscal year 2023 spending bill. And um, I would like to submit the State Department's Black Sea Security Strategy for the record at this time without objection. Thank you, so entered. Assistant Secretary O'Brien, I look forward to hearing how this strategy will be implemented in part of a support of an action plan. However, before I turn to Ranking Member Ricketts, I'd like to make one additional point. I strongly believe that we need a comprehensive interagency strategy toward the region. That's why the Senate NDAA bill this year includes a provision requiring just that, a comprehensive interagency strategy for the Black Sea. I don't believe the State Department can do this alone. The Departments of Defense and Commerce, among others, also have critical roles to play in supporting our allies and partners in the region. So with that, I will turn to Ranking Member Ricketts for his remarks. Great. Thank you, Madam Chair. And thank you, Assistant Secretary and fellow Nebraskan, Jim O'Brien, for being here with us today. The Black Sea is becoming a gravitational center for Europe's future and is yet another important theater in the great power competition between Russia, us, and the People's Republic of China. Putin's illegal war in Ukraine has put a spotlight on the region as part of the front lines in this battle against Russia's aggression. Putin would like nothing better than to turn the Black Sea into a Russian lake and its airspace into a no-fly zone. Encouragingly, recent Ukrainian attacks in Crimea and on the port of Sevastopol have put Russia's vaunted Black Sea fleet into retreat and its maritime dominance into question. So much so that it is now looking for, to separatist friends in Abkhazia for a new naval base. Georgia must be unequivocal in its rejection of this Russian power play into its sovereign territory. While Russia continues to weaponize the world's food supply after the withdrawal from the Black Sea, Black sea Grain Initiative, Ukraine has once again proven to be resilient. By turning the Western Black Sea into a no-go area for Russian warships, Ukraine, with the help of the Black Sea NATO allies, has successfully established a humanitarian corridor to thwart Russia's de facto blockade. Despite these recent successes, we cannot allow ourselves to be lulled into complacency. While Russia has failed in its goals on the battlefield, it has also shown its ability to adapt. As Russia looks to disrupt this corridor with mines, the U.S. must find ways to enhance the naval capabilities of our Romanian and Bulgarian friends to deter Russia's destructive tactics. Turkey, as a valued NATO ally and the gatekeeper of the Black Sea, will also continue to play a pivotal role in constraining Russia. But Turkey, after playing both sides throughout this conflict, must make a choice if it truly wants to play a productive role in the region. Ultimately, the Black Sea's future hinges on Russia's clear defeat in Ukraine. And as Ukraine continues its long-term plan to push Russia out of Crimea, it should do so with unwavering American support. The Biden administration's recent decision to send attackums was a welcome reversal after 18 months of pointless depriv pointlessly depriving Ukraine of weapons it needs to be successful. However, by only sending the limited-range variant, I fear the administration is only paying lip service to its critics and sending another message of weakness to Putin. While Russia represents the greatest threat to peace and stability in the Black Sea, we must also not lose focus on the PRC's desire to spread its tentacles into the region. That means ensuring that the PRC plays no role in post-war reconstruction for Ukraine. The PRC would use its presence to collect intelligence on Ukrainian and foreign-supplied military capabilities, as well as steal the intellectual property of strategic U Ukrainian companies. 
and its track record of spreading corruption and undermining the rule of law would serve only to hinder Ukraine's Euro-Atlantic trajectory. This should be prevented at all costs. The PRC's no-limit partnership with Russia is proof that its efforts will never be in the best interest of the region. Our Black Sea allies and partners should send a clear message to Beijing that its predatory lending practices and malign influence have no place in the Black Sea. For too long, the Black Sea region, even after Russia's initial invasion of the Ukraine and illegal annexation of Crimea in 2014, has remained a low-priority theater for the U.S. and NATO. Recent events prove that this must change. Neither direct NATO nor EU, uh, neither NATO or nor the EU has a specific strategy directed toward the Black Sea. American leadership is needed here to get the ball rolling. Assistant Secretary O'Brien, I look forward to hearing you, from you on ways that we can better coordinate with our allies and partners in the region to deter Russian and PRC malign influence and aggression, both in the short term and the long term. Finally, I want to commend Senator Shaheen for her leadership on this issue, and I'm proud to support her Black Sea Security Act. Madam Chair. Thank you very much, Senator Ricketts. And thank you to our witness um, for participating in person in front of the committee today. Um, Jim O'Brien is Assistant Secretary of State for Europe and Eurasian Affairs, a position he began after being confirmed earlier this month. So I don't think you've quite been on the job a month yet. Um, but. Mr. O'Brien formerly was a career State Department officer. He served two previous administrations as a special presidential envoy. And notably, Mr. O'Brien was the first presidential envoy for hostage affairs from 2015 to 2017. He helped establish the office and worked for the safe return of 100 American citizens. Over the course of his career at the State Department, he's led a large and successful sanctions program advised on a range of issues, including peace negotiations in Europe, scientific and environmental agreements, and initiatives to investigate and prosecute persons responsible for war crimes. With that, Mr. O'Brien, I will turn it over to you, and again, thank you for joining us today. Yeah, thank you, Madam Chair and uh, Ranking Member. It's a, a privilege to be here, so I'm very pleased you asked me. Thank you for legislating that we had to put this strategy together um, and for engaging with our partners and for being as involved in pushing us to develop a strategic approach to, to the region. Um, I have an excellent written statement that uh, others wrote for me, and so I'll submit that for the record. And I want to try to talk through where we are at this moment, because I think you and Senator Rick, it's both captured where, where we are. Um, in the last few years, I've been fortunate to, both in government and out of, I've visited Batumi, Poti, Chornomorsk, Yuzhny, Pivdeni, Galatz in Romania, and the Salina Canal uh, that connects the Danube to the Black Sea, um, the port of Costanza. That's a lot of water for a guy from Nebraska, but it, 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 it shows us how important the Black Sea is and that this strategy was developing momentum and moving to the center of our, our foreign policy. And to our Bulgarian friends, I know I have to get to Varna, um, and I've been to Istanbul as well. So now I, I, I want to talk about what our strategy is and how we'll implement it and how it relates to the current moment. So what we're seeking is a Black Sea that is secure, prosperous, democratic, and globally connected to markets around the world. All of that requires freedom of navigation. 
The threat to this, as Senator Ricketts said, is Russia. It's trying to cut off Ukrainian access to the Black Sea, and that turns the Black Sea, it hopes, into a contest for domination against several NATO allies, trying to choke off critical trade routes for the South Caucasus, for Georgia, and for Central Asia. So that's what's at stake here. So what's our strategy? We can all read about it, and I'm glad you're putting the strategy in the record so that everyone can. Five parts, we have strong diplomatic engagement. I have been in Romania, our great and good allies and partners, twice in the last several months to try to build up cooperation um, on the Black Sea. Um, we've engaged strongly in Georgia as well as with the other states around the Black Sea. We have security cooperation as the second element, put in almost $370 million in FMF financing for security cooperation with Romania and Bulgaria. We have a brigade combat team in Romania, and we're working together against Russia's current threats by building up the surveillance capacities in Romania as Russia bombs on the border, um, but also um, supporting efforts by Turkey, Bulgaria, and Romania to remove the scourge of mines that threaten the freedom of navigation. There are other elements in our strategy, but that's, that's just an illustration. The third element is resilience through regional cooperation. And here this story is just remarkable. So we just a month ago announced $300 million in support through the Three Seas Initiative. And the, the heart of that is to build the cooperation um, along the shores of the Black Sea. Uh, $50 million for a terminal in Poti, which brings grain and other commodities from Central Asia. We're working on energy security. We have started to create routes for non-Russian gas to Bulgaria, Romania, Ukraine, and Moldova. Um, we're working on nuclear fuel as an option, as well as renewable fuels, such as offshore wind. And Senator Duckworth, I know you just visited some of those elements. Um, and finally, the strategy looks to democratic resilience the, um, as a, a, the, the foundation for what, what we are looking to do. Now, I'll talk about measures for success in a moment, but above all, at the, uh, right now, how do we measure success? It's through success in Ukraine. So Ukraine is where Putin has decided to launch his war of global revision. And you just listen to him. He says what he wants is a return to the sphere of influence he had at the end of World War II. So he starts by eliminating Ukraine, and then by separating Ukraine's government from its global partners, its global markets, and from its own people. So the supplemental request the administration has sent addresses all the dimensions of Putin's offensive and makes it clear that we will stand with the Ukrainian people as long as it takes until they beat back Putin. For America, you beat a bully before he gathers steam, and that's what we're doing now. And it's a very good bargain because Ukrainians are paying the bulk of the cost. They are putting their lives on the line. And they've destroyed half of Putin's army. So this is a good deal for America, and it is important to, as we look to, to build for the future. Now, I'll touch on a few of the elements in which the Black Sea particularly is critical to getting Ukraine up and running so that its economy can pay its own way going forward and its people can thrive as they look toward a future as part of Europe. But I'll just close with a note. 30 years ago, as a young State Department lawyer, I spent a lot of time in both Russia and Ukraine. 
we were designing the assistance programs, and we offered the countries a simple choice. Come, be a normal country. Make some rules. Uh, let your people be free and prosperous. In the last 10 years, we've seen Ukraine has made the choice that Ronald Reagan wanted when he said, tear down the wall. This is about their freedom. Putin made the opposite choice, and he says he wants to go back to a world where Moscow decides what people from Stettin to Trieste get to do with their futures. That's what's at stake here. And the Black Sea is the forefront. And Senator Ricketts, you had it exactly right. Ukraine has won an amazing naval victory that has opened the possibility of its economy returning. Did that without a navy, which is pretty amazing. We have to follow through on that with a strong approach in the Black Sea. So thank you, and I look forward to your questions. Well, thank you very much. And let me just say we'll go into a round of questions. I'm hopeful that we can have um, several rounds, depending on time. And I would ask that um, people try and stick to the five minutes that um, for each question session. Now, since you mentioned the Navy and, um, and also Ukraine's work that has really had a significant impact in destroying some of Russia's Navy, I want to start with that. Because in the strategy, the State Department acknowledges that a visible U.S. and NATO naval presence in the Black Sea contributes to European and global security. And prior to the 2022 invasion of Ukraine, the United States and allied nations routinely conducted naval exercises and port calls in the Black Sea. These helped to secure freedom of navigation in this waterway. They provided a measure of deterrence against Russia's Navy. So the question is, should we seek further US or NATO military presence in the Black Sea? And and how, how do you envision that that might happen? So um, thank you for that, Madam Chair. This is a um, constant topic of discussion with our Turkish allies. So Turkey controls access to the Black Sea for warships. It made the decision upon Russia's further invasion not to allow warships of Russia and other countries into the Black Sea as a way of reducing threats to shipping. Um, and that has been um, very important as a contribution to Ukraine's security. We talk constantly about whether the balance is correct and whether we have the right set of forces. Um, and the Turks look at this constantly. So we'll keep working at it. I'll note two additional points. One is the importance of the local naval assets. So Turkey, Bulgaria, and Romania are working together, I mentioned, on a demining program. They're also working to secure the safety of shipping in the territorial waters of, of their, um, their countries. That's very welcome, and we support this in a variety of, of ways. The other thing is there are other assets that matter at sea. So we've seen Ukraine drive off Russia's Black Sea fleet with use of drones and other new tactics. So much of what we're providing to Ukraine does go to providing real security in the Black Sea region. But we'll keep looking at whether the mix is, we have is correct. Thank you, I appreciate that. And you can't, sadly, the graphics are not big enough, I fear. But this map gives us some idea of the naval capacity that the countries bordering the Black Sea have. And 
as we can see, Turkey and Russia are the only ones with submarines that are listed there. Um, and Ukraine, despite only having 13 ships, has been able to really undermine Russia's Navy with five um, service combatants, 32 principal ships, and six submarines there that were in the Black Sea at Sevastopol. So really an impressive um, effort. You mentioned the anti-mining efforts, and we heard that last week when Senator Ricketts and I met with um, the ambassadors from the Black Sea region. Um, the importance of those anti-mining efforts, particularly given what the Russians have done in the Black Sea. Can you tell us what additional congressional authorization might be needed for that to move forward and how soon that's going to begin? I don't know what additional congressional authorization we need. I know we're providing support and then maybe through some of the FMF programs there'll be some time. I, I don't want to speculate. Let me get back to you in writing on this. I think the strong support for the programs is incredibly helpful. Um, but I'm, I'm not sure we need a specific action at the moment. Okay. But funding, are we helping to provide some resources for the program? We've made some resources available, whether they're going to that specific initiative or to some of the support initiatives, such as um, you know, identifying where the activity should take place and you know, that kind of work, I, I think we can give you a briefing on. Great. Thank you. Um, Senator Ricketts. Great, thank you very much, Madam Chair. As we discussed, Russia was part of the Black Sea Grain Initiative up until July when they pulled out. Up until that point, it had delivered 33 metri million metric tons of grain, and then since Russia's pulled out, they attacked port facilities and ships, uh, damaging civilian vessels, 300,000 metric tons of grain was destroyed, and as uh, the Chair said, really using food as a weapon and threatening not just Ukraine, but other countries who rely on that food supply. However, as we also mentioned, the Ukrainians have been very successful in driving off the Black Sea fleet out of Sevastopol, and they've had to re retreat to the eastern part of the Black Sea, and that opened up that corridor, which now the Russians are trying to mine to be able to, uh, you know, interfere with that. But, um, you know, this uh, humanitarian corridor had been opened, and at one point, Secretary Ryan, you suggested that the success of the quarter, along with uh, insurers raising their rates and Moscow's uh, costs going up, might change Russia's, Russia's calculation on that Black Sea Grain Initiative. Do you believe that Russia is considering joining the Black Sea, rejoining that, and or would it only be under lifting the sanctions that they've already demanded these uh, all these sanctions be lifted on? What's kind of your take on where Russia is standing right now? Yeah, it's a great question. The um, so I'll try to answer in two senses. So first, I don't speculate on Russian intentions. <laughs> they, uh, it's clear they, they will uh, do what they can to demonstrate their dominance when they have it. And I think what they've been surprised by is since July, Ukraine has managed to continue its exports um, and has uh, driven back Russian um, ability to restrict its exports. At the same time, the threat to Russian ships affects Russian prices. So everybody's insurance rates went up. 
Um, big ships were reluctant to go to the Russian ports, which meant Russia had to buy its own ships to manage its shipping, so all the costs went up. So this hasn't been the kind of great moment of victory that I think President Putin was briefed that it would be. So they're now in a world of considering a different approach. Whether that leads them back to the Black Sea Initiative or it leads them to simply say, let's have an arrangement where all shipments of grain or all commercial shipping are off limits, that's something they will have to calculate. There's a lot of diplomatic activity to try to, to get them to make such a commitment. But um, I, I think what they decide to say will be known only once they feel forced to take a position. So Sorry, to that end, then, it's fair to say, or would you agree, that if we were able to keep that corridor open, you know, for example, helping out with the demining efforts, that that would put more rush, pressure on Russia to come to the table with yes. regard to that Black Sand Green Initiative. Absolutely. Um, and, and that's what we're working on. So there are actually three things we're working on with um, Ukraine and its partners. One are land routes, um, some of which go into Poland, Slovakia, and Hungary, and on to Italy. Those handle about, let's, let's do this. Ukraine used to export about 6 million tons of grain a month, and that was vitally important for world markets. They were 40, 50% of the world food program um, uh, grain every year. So about one to one and a half million tons can go out through those normal routes. It's a bit expensive, but it's, it's certainly possible, and we'll get that up and running again soon. The other land routes go down through Romania, ultimately, and so the meetings I've been in with Romania and Moldova are about opening up to nine border crossing points and building the infrastructure that will let grain flow down through land and ultimately into the deep sea ports in Costanza. The third route is along the coast. And, and this is now showing real signs of success. It's allowing large ships to, to move. And with that, Ukraine, we've made a commitment that by the end of this month, we think Ukraine will be about 4 million tons of grain through those routes, and I think it can go much higher soon. So we'll be almost back at pre-war levels. Then the challenge is getting the costs down, and we're working on that as well. So Sorry. let me ask you another question along those lines as far as demining. If we were to loan or sell minesweepers, which are purely defensive, yeah. to Romania or Bulgaria, I mean, one of the vessels that was hit a mine, one of the three cargo vessels, was a Turkish flag vessel off the coast of Romania. So perhaps Turkey would have an interest. Do you think they would still, Turkey would still uh, use its Montreux authority to stop a, if we loaned or sold a minesweeper to Bulgaria, Romania, would they stop that from coming through the Strait? You know, I've raised that with Turkish officials. The, I think they would look at it very carefully. I mean, the, the restriction in Montreux, I believe, is only for combat vessels. And as you say, a minesweeper is, you know, arguably just a defensive item. I'd say two things. They are testing how effective the, the local assets are at managing this issue. And I'm not sure that one ship actually hit a mine. I thought there was some question it was an engine problem. I mean... These are older ships very often, but the, um, we'd have a, a, a very strong discussion. Turkey has allowed NATO minesweepers into the Black Sea since the start of Russia's further invasion. So there is some precedent that they would allow it if it looks, but I think they would decide based on the, the situation at the time. So it's, it's certainly a viable conversation to have. Right. Thank you very much. Thank you, Senator Ricketts. Senator Duckworth. Thank you, Madam Chair, and thank you, Secretary O'Brien, for being here today. 
Uh, as noted previously, I did just return from an official visit to Romania where I had excellent conversations with our allies about our mutual support for Ukraine as well as our shared security priorities. During my discussions with Romanian parliamentarians and cabinet ministers, I was struck by the central role that Romania has played in countering um, Putin's aggression. While Romania does not publicize many of their specific actions, they are in fact an excellent, even indispensable partner. As one example, Romania is providing energy to its neighbors, Ukraine and Moldova, when necessary, as well as buying power from Ukraine when available in order to bolster the Ukrainian economy. When I thanked Romanian leaders during my trip, they expressed steadfast resolve to maintain this essential service for their neighbors. Secretary O'Brien, can you elaborate, elaborate on the portion of the Black Sea security strategy that covers promoting regional energy security and speak to additional opportunities to counter Putin's aggression in the energy sector? Um, yeah, so thank you for your visit and especially for highlighting the role that Romania is playing. Uh, you know, I've been there twice, as I said, and I think we could not ask for a better ally and partner. Um, the willingness to stand up in support of Ukraine has been um, really a pillar of the global coalition fighting Russia. Um, Romania has the, you know, the deep sea port and the capacity to help Ukraine get its economy running very quickly. And, and I'll just, I will get back to your specific question, but just to, to, to note, I was in Ukraine last week with Secretary Pritzker, who's the president's envoy for economic recovery of Ukraine. And President Zelensky talked about how important it is for his people to see some sign of economic life returning. It's already happening. It's amazing, is those of you who have visited Kyiv and some of the other major cities. If we're able to provide air defense, which we're asking for more help to do, and support for their electricity grid, their metals and grain industries will start to return to life very quickly. And by one estimate, which we have to check, if they could double their exports through the Black Sea, it could provide an additional 25 or more billion dollars to their GDP, and about five to six billion dollars immediately in tax revenue for Ukraine. So if we want a path by which Ukraine begins to pay for more of its, its costs itself, the way forward is through the supplemental request, but also through the Black Sea, because that is how Ukraine's economy um, moves forward. And Romania is a critical partner in, in having that happen. Now, to energy, I'd say there are a couple of uh, parts to the strategy, and we can do a deeper briefing at some point you know, when you're back. One part is to um, make sure that the states have access to electricity, but also to gas from non-Russian sources. So here, Greece has been a critical partner. Bulgaria now is arranging to import, I think it's a third this year and more next year of its gas from uh, through Greece into Bulgaria, and they're working interconnectors um, back up into Moldova, Romania, and Ukraine as well. Romania, uh, Romania has been providing equipment and support to Moldova um, as a, an energy provider. So that kind of resilience is, is very important. The second pillar is to um, work, and there's also gas from the South Caucasus and Caspian that will begin to flow. The, the other piece is to build local supplies of energy generation. Very often, those are renewable sources. So you saw we've given money for off 
um, shore wind power in Romania. Um, we're also working on nuclear power, a small modular reactor in Romania. The Br a British company is doing the same in Bulgaria. So we're creating these alternatives. And what's significant is that those replace generations-long entanglements with Rosatom, the Russian company that breeds corruption wherever it goes. So, so the strategy is to provide local generation where we can and connectivity um, to, to bridge the gap. And we're putting money into both of them and we're starting to see double-digit changes and lowering dependence on Russia. So I think that's one of the measures of success for me. Thank you. Um, when I was there, I met with SNN, Romania's State Nuclear Authority, and had excellent, excellent meetings with them. My own home state in Illinois is a national leader in tech, uh, nuclear technology. Um, I'm running out of time, but perhaps you can... Uh, That's my fault. I apologize. <laughs> it's all right. Um, uh, uh, perhaps you can uh, uh, res respond in, in, um, in a written format. Um, if you could just discuss how the U.S. can build on current efforts to promote the development of SMRs to speed broader use of this technology responsibly yes. and in a way that leverages the expertise we have in states like mine, Illinois, and elsewhere in the U.S., and how can Congress help with that in partnership with a country like Romania that's really pioneering this effort? And I know we've put, I think, $57 million into some feasibility studies on the energy sector, including a bit of the SMR work, and I know that's 200 jobs in Illinois and Texas. Um, so it's we're directly supporting jobs in the U.S. that go to supporting energy independence in the Black Sea. Thank you. Thank you, Senator Duckworth. Senator Barrasso. Uh, thank you very much, Madam Chairman. Thanks for being here and joining us today. We appreciate it. Just a couple of quick questions. Um, in terms of the Black Sea Maritime Patrol, you know, NATO created a very successful Baltic air uh, policing mission to safeguard the integrity of the NATO alliance members' airspace. Uh, the mission could serve as a model, I think, for efforts to maintain a robust NATO presence in the Black Sea. So what are your views on NATO establishing a Black Sea Maritime Patrol mission? Um, we have a fairly robust presence that we're working in Romania, um, particularly because Russia flies right along the border yeah. um, when it attacks the Ukrainian facilities. Um, and I know we have beefed up that element. Uh, something dedicated and called the maritime mission, it's an interesting idea, and I haven't thought about it. I'd have to talk with my Pentagon colleagues and, and come up with an answer. But certainly the capability is a really important one. Yeah, so that was a question. The capacity, the capability, and then yeah. the commitment to do it as well. So yeah. thank you. In terms of the Russia-Turkey gas hub, there's been discussion about a gas hub. Russia's indicated its strong interest in creating this gas hub in Turkey. Uh, there are reports that negotiations between Russia and Turkey are at a standstill due to disagreements regarding who should oversee it. Uh, Russia will use the hub as a workaround, I think, to sell to countries who are not willing to buy directly from them. Uh, is it possible, is it also possible that for Russia to use the hub as a means to mask exports that are sanctioned? I mean, Russia continues to find any way it can. What, what, what do you think the implications would be if this deal went through between Russia and Turkey? Well, I'd say in both gas and nuclear power, we have been encouraged our Turkish, encouraging our Turkish partners to avoid long-term entanglements with Russia. They have been doing this for hundreds of years with Russia in different sectors, and they're aware of... Uh, the need to keep them close, but um, more than arm's length away. So they, they think that they can negotiate an arrangement that will allow them control. 
uh, I think we're skeptical of that and advising them to look to other places for their, their gas and frankly the nuclear power as well. Um, and we're taking what measures we can to make that more likely. Um, yeah, I want to just get next to uh, NATO strategy. So the security and stability of the Black Sea is critically important thanks to the security interest of the United States as well as the security interest certainly in, in NATO. Earlier this month, the NATO Parliamentary Assemb Assembly announced that they're set to adopt recommendations supporting strengthening defenses around the Black Sea. Okay, what, what are the elements that are essential to any NATO strategy to address the security in the Black Sea? And, and what strategy should NATO use, do you think, to build some resilience to uh, the malign influence in the region? Well, in, in our strategy, you know, we talk about, we're, uh, as the State Department, we're talking about diplomatic strategy, building strong democracies, security cooperation to build up the local capabilities uh, on this, as well as um, resilience, um, you know, so things like shared energy infrastructure that avoid the coercive power that Russia likes to use, and um, then economic support so that they're more prosperous. It, those are the kind of core elements. In terms of a military capability, you've touched on it. You need to be um, on sea, maybe undersea, or, uh, able to control the air, um, and control from the coastline the ability to threaten um, naval assets and the port facilities that are important to commerce. Now, how we, you know, what weapons array and who plays what role, that'll be something that NATO will, will dig in on. Could, could you just talk a little bit about Russia's current military strengths and weaknesses in the Black Sea region and what the status is of their naval forces in the Black Sea? So they have redeployed away from Crimea over toward uh, their, their major port, the, the military side of the port. Uh, this reduces their ability to restrict others' um, seafaring activities um, and has been a really important change. There are indications that they're trying to mine or otherwise disrupt uh, the shipping, and that's something we're watching very carefully. It, it so far has been more um, by way of um, faint than reality, but, but we know they will try. Um, and they're using air assets to try to control or intimidate shippers, again, as a difficulty. That's why, again, in the supplemental, we're looking for the way to build up air defense, because that's the answer to Russia using aircraft to lay mines in the Black Sea. So all of this works together as we try to build going forward. Yeah, uh, Senator Duckworth talked about her recent trip to Romania. I've been there on the military base a number of years ago. Um, how can we continue to support modernization and uh, interoperability of Romanians' uh, armed forces? Yeah, uh, well, I, as I mentioned, we've um, provided a substantial grant of foreign military financing so that they're building more, as you say, interoperability. We have a, a combat brigade. I think we've, I'll have to get you to check the numbers, trebled the number of U.S. forces in Romania. Um, and they're a fantastic partner on the Black Sea region and, frankly, elsewhere as well. So we'll keep integrating as, as close as we can. Thank you, Madam Chairman. Thank you, Senator Brasso. Senator Van Hollen. Uh, thank you. Uh, thank you, Madam Chair, and, and welcome, Mr. Assistant Secretary. I, I know we've covered a lot of areas that I would plan to focus on, the demining of the Black Sea, I think looking for alternative uh, routes for Ukrainian wheat through Romania. Uh, so I'd like to turn to the issue of cybersecurity uh, because I know that part of the Black Sea security strategy um, involves addressing the malign cyber activities uh, in the region. Uh, my state of Maryland is home to Cyber Command, uh, DISA, and other agencies that are 
uh, very focused uh, on these challenges. And so I just wanted to ask you what, what we are doing uh, to try to help uh, our friends in the area uh, address cyber attacks uh, from Russia. Yeah, so uh, Senator, I'll get you a written briefing in full about specifically the cyber activities. I mean, certainly Russia's attempt to control the information space are very damaging politically. So as part of our program to support the democratic resilience of the seven states we're discussing today, um, we put a great deal of emphasis on countering the kind of, I'll say, artificial efforts to influence um, the, the, um, the public sphere. Um, on cybersecurity itself, we work with each of our partners on hardening their systems so that the critical infrastructure and the key government functions are protected from, from Russian attack. I think the specifics, frankly, I would rather give you in another form. Um, I appreciate that, but you can, you can assure us that we're very engaged uh, yes. on that front. Yes. Okay. I would like to pick up uh, on a question I think Senator Duckworth raised regarding um, diversifying energy supplies, gas supplies away from Russia. I think she mentioned Romania. Uh, President Sandu of um, Moldova uh, just recently said that that was a priority yeah. uh, of theirs. Uh, could you address what we can do to help Moldova, but more broadly, what we are doing in the aftermath of um, you know, much of Europe waking up uh, at the time of the Russian invasion to say, oh my God, we just became over-dependent on Russian energy. This has been a, a, a remarkable defeat for Putin. He, he thought that the gas would give him the ability to control Europe's response to his further invasion of Ukraine. That either the prospect of cheap gas would induce people to allow him or the fear of losing all gas would cause them to, to cave. And that has not happened. The result is he has lost his own most lucrative markets, and it's turned a great deal of their long built-up gas infrastructure into a white elephant, some of it lying under the sea, but even the above ground. Um, the Ukrainians report that the gas, last gas pipeline that is carrying some gas to Europe is carrying much less than half the contracted amounts. And... Um, they think that number will go down. So, so we're looking at a country that has sacrificed one of its um, main sources of income and a long-held, dearly prized asset. So how is that happening? We've seen all the states of Europe both take some serious economic pain to make the change. You know, Germany says that its GDP suffered a, a, a fair bit from making the change. But they're, they're buying a considerable amount of U.S. LNG, um, and they're looking to other sources for, for gas and then to new sources of energy as well. That's also true of the states on the Black Sea. So I mentioned earlier the Greek port um, of Alexandropolis is a very important source of LNG. I think it's almost oversubscribed. Several Turkish ports have LNG terminals and are making capacity available so that gas can be provided to the, um, the states. I was with President Radov in Bulgaria last year, states of the region. I was with President Radov when he was completing the deal that would allow Bulgaria to begin, I think by next year it'll be two-thirds of their gas will be purchased from non-Russian sources. That's quite a remarkable transition just for that one state, but especially when you're looking at an entire continent looking a different way for its, its gas supplies. So this is moving very quickly, and it will be very hard to turn it back the other way. 
I appreciate that, and you know, we've been following closely the the impact of the um, oil price cap as well yeah. uh, that was placed on Russia, which uh, seems to have have had some uh, a pretty significant bite. Uh, although, obviously, sale of energy, gas uh, is is still their primary uh, source of revenue. But but that's a good news story you're painting, and uh, I I agree the the rate at which uh, the pace at which um, people have been trying to wean themselves off of Russian gas has been impressive. More work to do, but um, as you say, it, uh, it, it's happened relatively quickly. Thank you. Thank you, sir. Thank you, Senator Van Hollen. I think we have time for another round. So assuming that Senator Ricketts and I are both on board, let's do that. Um, most of our conversation has been around NATO and what NATO might do in the region, but a number of the Black Sea countries are also EU aspirants um, in different stages of that, of course, but how important is it, do you think, for the EU to think about how to include some of these states as they're looking at EU enlargement, and why is that important for not just countries in the Black Sea region, but for other countries that are looking towards the West and the Transatlantic Alliance? Sometimes we do talk about this with a alphabet stew of organizations, and I think this is pretty simple. The European Union is based on four freedoms, all right, a people to move, move their goods, send capital, sell their services, and to do it uh, not just in their neighborhood, but across the entire Union. So when a state says, we want to join that, they are saying, we want to be open, just in the way that a US state says, we're open for interstate commerce. That allows an incredible growth of prosperity. And we see it in places like Romania, which I think the, the average income has close to doubled over recent years, or up 70%, do I have that right? Sorry, I'm phoning a friend. The, um, <laughs> but, it's, it, and so we see that as an incredible allure, plus it brings with it guarantees that relate to the rule of law and freedom from, from autocratic government. So that's what's at stake. Now, the other piece, what I care about as an American policymaker, is that I want our friends to keep getting stronger because we're facing a sort of global challenge here. So China wants to set the rules of the global economy in the next century. Russia kind of wants to help out a bit. But China's 1.4 billion people having some economic difficulties, it's, but it's very um, active in trying to shape the rules. If we are working with our friends, we are, if you, depending how you count it, Europe is about 600 million people, we're almost 350 million people, Japan, Korea, all of a sudden we're getting close to the same size. And we're very wealthy societies. We're used to writing rules. So that becomes a place where we're in very good position to control what happens as the rules get made for artificial intelligence, biomedical engineering, all the things that will drive productivity over the next couple generations. So that's what's at stake. Ukraine is 35 million people, we'll say, highly educated, very developed IT sectors. I'm kind of jealous that they're going to join the European Union because that is a really strong addition to the team that wants to write the rules and live in an open society based on the rule of law. That's what we're fighting for now. 
Well, thank you. I agree, and I, I hope that the EU is going to look at um, the opportunities that and um, provide a real expedited uh, path for some of the countries, recognizing that there are reforms that still have to be done. Um, but one of those countries that we haven't talked much about yet is Georgia. And Georgia is really um, under a significant amount of pressure from Russia. Um, they share a very long border with Russia. And so how are, how are we working to secure, help secure Georgia's democracy? They have elections next year. What are we thinking about in terms of those elections? So uh, thank you for your attention to Georgia. I think it's uh, um, very important. In part, Senator Ricketts, as you noted, 20% of its territory is occupied by Russia, and Russia now is making noises about trying to use that territory as a, a base for military projection. And you know that's, that's uh, something we watch very closely. So on Georgia, as you know well, 85, 90% of the Georgian people want to be a part of this rule-abiding community. They want to join the EU. They want to be very close to the US. The question is whether a small group of businesses and others um, who do have some political influence prefer being in a gray area, sort of between Russia and the West. So our challenge is to, to point out to the people each time there's an inflection point when a decision must be made. So we have put out forward some sanctions and some requirements for reform. We are working completely in line with our EU friends. The EU will make a decision about whether to grant Georgia the status of a candidate, which opens up access to funding and technical assistance. We have said that there are a set of measures Georgia must take in order to qualify for the candidacy, and we are using we're not, we don't make that decision, but we are using our tools to try to back that. So we have a great new ambassador in Georgia, um, and she is evaluating kind of what the best course is. On elections, because you have been a really stalwart uh, activist, and as you know, I spent years working with an organization that helps to organize democratic elections. The, um, so thank you for that. We are uh, waiting for the initial report of the UN election preparation office that will tell us what the design of a long-term observation mission has to be, and then we'll work with the Georgian authorities to be sure that that election is as free and fair as we can make it, using our very excellent partners, both international organizations, but more importantly, the Georgian people. Because I think we talked to some of the same activists, and their point to us is, this is our country, we're not leaving, and it's going to be a democracy until we're done. So I think our job is to to help them have a good election. I certainly agree. Um, I have some other questions on Georgia, but let me turn it over to Senator Ricketts because my time is up. Uh, thank you, Madam Chair. Uh, Turkey certainly has no interest in the Black Sea becoming a Russian lake. And we've been getting mixed messages out of Turkey with regard to this Ukrainian war. On the one hand, they provide critical weaponry to Ukraine, but then Turkish companies help avoid the sanctions by doing business with Russia. They support Ukraine entering NATO, yet they hold up Sweden's ascension into NATO until just very recently when it was put to, get to their uh, legislative branch. Um, they, uh, on the one hand, have helped um, 
keep Russian warships out of the Black Sea, but also are preventing our ships from going into the, our warships from going into the Black Sea. And of course, they've got the opportunity here, depending on how this war works out when the war ends, to be maybe the preeminent naval force in the, in the Black Sea. The Black Sea Grain Initiatives was also one of the things that President Erdogan championed. That obviously came to an end when Russia pulled out. Where do you see the relationship between Russia and Turkey right now? How do you assess that relationship? What, what is President Erdogan thinking of how the Russians are behaving? This is a, a chapter in centuries of uh, competition, cooperation between Turkey and Russia um, for control of Crimea, control of the Black Sea, control of Istanbul itself. Um, and President Erdogan is very aware that what he does not want to do is be alone with Russia. So his presence in the alliance and the, the close cooperation with us on any number of issues around Turkey's borders, but also um, through, say, the Western Balkans, is vitally important to Turkey. Um, that allows us to get a lot of work done with Turkey. Um, but it's also clear that they um, have, well, they do listen to us when we are concerned that they are tilting too far um, in a way that will make them vulnerable to Russian pressure. So we talked about energy earlier. And um, what we would like to see is them working with us to bring Sweden into NATO very quickly. So we're working and hoping this vote will happen in the next week or two. That will leave only Hungary that has not ratified, and we believe that will happen quickly as well. Um, so the alliance will be strengthened, and Turkey will have restated its commitment to working with us on the problems around its neighborhood. Um, and we do have a very good working relationship. I did, realize did, this did answer... Ru did Russia pull out of the, building out of the grain deal harm that relationship, or did President Erdogan not really care that much. I think, no, I believe, well, I, again, I won't characterize President Erdogan's you know, emotions. I, um, he made a very strong effort to encourage Russia to stay in and to return. He traveled to Sochi to see President Putin um, and I think met a really blunt no that could not have been welcome. I, I won't state what he felt about it. Uh, I think for Turkey having, um, you know, I, I never got back to my answer on what's success about our strategy. Well, one measure is um, increased freedom of navigation around the Black Sea. More trade, more ships, lower costs. That is the core of Turkey's commercial interest. And in fact, it's almost existential for that whole long Turkish coastline along the Black Sea. So I suspect what he would want is an arrangement that ensures all of the commercial shipping in the Black Sea, that it can move at as low cost as possible. And that's only possible if Russia backs off the threats that it has made to shipping around in the, that northern, northwestern quadrant. Okay, so that's a great segue to one of the other questions I was going to ask, is there's reports that Russia has created this ghost fleet of cargo ships that are moving yes. between the Black Sea and the, its bases in Syria to transport military items. Have there been discussions with Turkey about trying to intervene in some way because these are carrying you know, weapons that, if it's true, you know, carrying weapons that potentially create a more of a danger in the Black Sea? 
any discussions on that with Turkey? Yes, and I'm going to make this a wider discussion maybe for a second. Um, so we, we spoke earlier, Senator Van Hollen asked about the oil price cap. Um, the normal way that we use sanctions to enforce things like a price cap or limitations on who's allowed to buy and sell a commodity like oil is, is through service providers, insurance companies, crew facilities, maritime registers, you know, on down the list. What Russia has tried to do with, and Iran has tried to do the same, is create what they call a ghost fleet. So they've bought up old ships and they try to run them without ever touching the, the places where we enforce sanctions. Now, what that means is you have this unregulated maritime presence. It's 500-odd ships that we're aware of. Um, and that's dangerous for shipping, it's dangerous for all counterparties, and it's dangerous for the ports where these ships go. So we published as a first step, we thought it was important to begin establishing what the parameters for regulating these ships would be. So we published a maritime advisory just a couple weeks ago, and already that's affecting, we'll say, due diligence and the commercial practices. We'll see how that far that goes. We need to follow that up with some teeth so that the people who are engaging in business with these ships realize that they're jeopardizing their access to um, the dollar, the euro, and to the commercial operations of the West. Um, we have already designated some of the port facilities or operators who've provided services to some ships, whether it was exactly munitions or other things. Um, and and that, that message, we believe, is starting to change practices, including at some ports. Um, on, on the Black Sea, um, and we'll continue work in this vein. So you'll see more done. But it's not simply a small number of ships carrying a specific kind of cargo. It's, it's a Russian effort to build a system that's outside any of the post-World War II regulatory mechanisms, and that is dangerous. It is also very costly for Russia, so it is eating into the money that Putin has to, to run his war, but we can't allow that kind of system to, to go unchecked. Great. Thank you. Thank you, Senator Ricketts. Um, I have just a couple more questions. But while we're on Turkey, let me just point out that the Turkish ambassador came to the meeting we had last week, and his comments were very helpful. Um, I especially appreciate that they are now taking up the ratification of Sweden's accession to NATO. Um, but, but I have to say, and I was very disappointed to see President Erdogan's comments in support of Hamas after the violence in the Middle East. So you don't need to comment on that. I just think it's important to point out that as we're, we're looking at the civilized world versus terrorist groups and um, those who would uh, base their operations on destruction, as we're seeing with Putin in Ukraine. Um, it's disappointing to see those kinds of comments. Thank, thank you for both those comments, Senator. Um, to go back to Georgia, one of, the, one of the issues that we heard the last time we were in Georgia was the Chinese effort to um, develop the port in Anaclea. Um, and that was concerning. So can you talk about how, how we plan to support Georgia as they're looking to remain resilient to Chinese efforts to develop that port and invest in other ways in the country? 
We've made clear that critical infrastructure should not belong to states that will steal or suborn the, the countries in which they operate. And that includes port facilities like the one in Anaclia. The, there are two finalists, I believe, for this tender. The project is many years from completion. So there's a joint Singaporean Chinese uh, consortium as well as a Western consortium. We have backed, and some of this was in my prior life, so I hope I'm allowed to speak to it, but the, the USDFC has uh, provided a very large loan to a facility in the uh, Pody port um, that handles bulk cargo. I mentioned that earlier. The, um, and, and we're working to develop these other facilities in Georgia so that they're able to manage a great deal more traffic so part of it is making sure that there is competition, um, and but also that Anaclia is controlled by a, a, a firm that is open to working in accordance with the rule of law, and will continue to insist on that. Um, one of the other things we heard that sound, I thought was very positive is the effort for this new east-west energy corridor that would go under the Black Sea and provide an alternative for energy coming out of um, Central Asia into Europe. Can you talk about why this would be helpful? And also, one of the things we heard was the real interest on the part of the Georgian officials we met with in having a development um, finance um, office in Georgia. It's, um, I know it's a, a new agency and they're still trying to decide where they're going to um, go, but the Black Sea region seems to me to be ripe for having that kind of um, DFC um, office that would be really helpful in the long term. I, I will um, confine myself here uh, to say that I think the DFC is incredibly valuable and I think its ability to be on site helps um, identify and even create investment opportunities often. Um, rather than just sifting through the opportunities that make it to it. And, and where it chooses to locate permanently or not, it's not my decision. But I, I agree the Black Sea is incredibly exciting. So, Senator, you took down your map. But the, um, this, the states of Central Asia largely have been, no, that's okay. They, they, uh, they've largely been dependent on routes that run through Russia or now through China. They want another way. And, and so that's for oil and gas. The oil currently runs through a Russian-based pipeline, um, but it's also for grain, fertilizers, and other items. So those have to come down to ports on the Caspian. So one point where it will be helpful to have legislative support is these ports, it's the Caspian, where a couple of the literal states are Iran and Russia. So we have to be very careful that we're not benefiting those states, but that we are creating opportunities for the other states. And understanding the choices we're making will be very helpful. Once it crosses the Caspian, it ends up in Azerbaijan, whatever the good is. And then the choice is either it goes to Georgia and across the Black Sea, or it has to go through Armenia, so we need an agreement with those two states, and then to Turkey, so Turkey has to open its border with Armenia, and then out again to the Black Sea. So whatever path we take leads us to the Black Sea, and that's why there's so much momentum behind the strategy that, that you've legislated to have us put in place. Well, thank you. I 
I agree. I think it makes a lot of sense um, to have to recognize how important that is as we're doing the strategy. Um, just because I'm out of time, but my final comment is to go back to Ukraine, because in your opening remarks, you talked about measuring success in the Black Sea by what happens in Ukraine. Can you talk about why um, funding for Ukraine and the supplemental is going to be so important? So I just say the measure of success we've touched on, I think there are certain stable measurements. So I mentioned more freedom of navigation. I'd say more states, part of the Black Sea trading region. So bringing Central Asia along is a real marker. And then I think it's the democratic stability of the states around the Black Sea, because that's the foundation for security, NATO membership, et cetera. So those things are there. But then the success of Ukraine. So why Ukraine? It's, this is the freedom that at least my whole lifetime we wanted to see extend across Europe. Putin wants to eliminate Ukraine and move from there. His officials talk about the Baltics as a historical Russian uh, place. They remind Poland that its territory used to at one point be part of Russia. They, um, and then they look at Bulgaria parts of Turkey and other places as points that Russia has been striving to control for hundreds of years. He wants that influence. That's what he is fighting for. So I look at Ukrainians, and when I was with President Zelensky last week, and he talks about his people, they are fighting and dying for this freedom. It's right for us to stand with them. We talk sometimes carelessly about burden sharing, but we're here with the greatest coalition the world's seen, at least since World War II, but I think maybe ever. It's more than 50 countries have supported Ukraine. In terms of pure money, about 45 to 50% more has gone to Ukraine from other countries than from the United States. So we're there with a coalition. I think we're indispensable to shaping what it does and how it does it. But we're building, as part of that then, a rule-abiding community that will stand for the next several generations. That's something I want to leave to my kids, rather than just holding on to the remnants of a 1940s settlement. We have the chance to do that now. And that's the moment. This is the moment to do it. Thank you. Senator Ricketts. Great. Thank you, Madam Chair. And I want to return to Ukraine as well. As you know, China is part of the No Limits Partnership with Russia, but they've also tried to position themselves to be a part of a peace settlement and then therefore be a part of the reconstruction of Ukraine. And as I mentioned in my opening comments, having the People's Republic of China have an influence on post-war Ukraine really goes against all of our interests. Uh, PRC companies own or operate terminals in nearly 100 commercial ports around the world, and then that creates a platform for the People's Liberation Army. It creates a platform for them to collect intelligence. Uh, this critical infrastructure they're involved in really puts us at a disadvantage in many areas. Um, they already have a history with Ukraine before the war, when in 2017 they upgraded Ukraine's uh, port of Odessa. And, uh, of course, through this war, countless Ukrainian port infrastructure facilities have been damaged by Russia, and especially since uh, we've seen this since the they've pulled out from the grain initiative. And it's obviously going to be very costly to repair and rebuild Ukraine. What threats does PRC involvement in Ukrainian construction do you see 
and what does it pose to Black Sea security and our U.S. interests, and what are we doing to really try to check that before it becomes an issue for us? I think it's a great question. Um, you know, Russia has not uh, shown any favoritism to uh, assets that were owned by the Chinese. The major facilities have been closed since the further invasion and um, damaged. The, but, but the important point here is, what's the future of Ukraine? And it's for the people of Ukraine to decide. Um, and they've decided they want to be part of a Western community. Um, and as a piece of that, our work with our European partners to uh, discuss a way forward with regard to China has been incredibly important. And we see, I'd say, a convergence of views about the risks that are posed by China. So as Ukraine decides, it's no longer about what, who it wants investing and holding what assets. It's not 2017 anymore. Ukraine will be emerging from this war with the opportunity to set in place ownership that will be compatible with the rules of a new European Union, one that is cognizant of the risks that China poses, one where we're in active conversation about the threat that's posed by having you know, what often are usurious, um, de usurious debt arrangements um, and, and kind of opaque and onerous ownership arrangements, control of data, et cetera. So all these things will be a part of the, the decision-making, and I feel pretty confident that we will be in place to, um, to have Ukraine firmly in a camp where we'll be comfortable. Now, it'll be their choice, but a major way that we shape that discussion with them is to, frankly, stay in the game from a financial standpoint. That's why we've asked for more than $60 billion, to provide support so that Ukraine can get itself back on its feet, but back on its feet, headed the direction we want. And that's the way we address the threat from China. Would you agree that if China were to get involved in the reconstruction, that, that would be a problem for our anti-corruption efforts and bringing about Western institutions to develop fully in Ukraine? Yes. What more can we as the United States do to really prevent that from happening than if we agree this is a really bad thing? Is there more? You mentioned it as the Ukraine's choice, which obviously that's true. But what can we do, uh, obviously, Continued investment, are there anything else we can be doing to be able to prevent the PRC from taking a bigger role in post-construction? You sound like you're hoping I'll say something in particular, but I, I think the, the main thing is it's difficult to be... No, I'm looking for ideas. No, I think it, it's hard to beat something with nothing. Right. And, and we, are being, we are very clear with Ukraine. The primary message of last week's visit was it's time to complete the reform agenda so that Ukraine builds in the transparency that we want and avoids the kind of opaque arrangements that allow autocratic regimes to flourish. Um, and the commitments are very good. Ukraine's taken some remarkable steps. It has two active, independent anti-corruption bodies that are investigating, we'll say, powerful political figures. Um, it has a, a, one of the most robust civil societies um, focused on anti-corruption that I've ever seen. Um, and within the administration, there are many people deeply committed to seeing Ukraine build a modern, decentralized, open economic architecture. So working with them and then being able to provide the resources that let them succeed now so that they don't have to go grasping at straws. So would you say then that just even the anti-corruption efforts we're doing right now that help create that open, transparent society is actually a you know, barrier to China coming in and yes. doing these deals because 
it's the opposite of what uh, yes. the People's Republic of China wants to see. Great. Yes. Thank you. Thank you, Senator Ricketts. We are being summoned to go vote. So I want to thank Assistant Secretary O'Brien again for your testimony today. Thank you for your partnership on this issue, Senator Ricketts, and um, for the information of everyone. The record will stay open for questions until close of business on Thursday. Thank you both very much. This time I close the hearing. <laughs>